Section 4 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Statesmen and Parties, Part 2. The accession of the Queen made it necessary that a new Parliament should be summoned. The struggle between parties among the constituencies was very animated and was carried on in some instances with a recourse to manoeuvre and stratagem such as in our time would hardly be possible the result was not a very marked alteration in the condition of parties but on the whole the advantage remained with the tories somewhere about this time it may be remarked the use of the word conservative to describe the latter political party first came into fashion mr wilson crocker is credited with the honour of having first employed the word in that sense. In an article in the Quarterly Review some years before, he spoke of being decidedly and conscientiously attached to what is called the Tory, but which might with more propriety be called the Conservative Party. During the elections for the new Parliament, Lord John Russell, speaking at a public dinner at Stroud, made allusion to the new name which his opponents were beginning to effect for their party if that he said is the name that pleases them if they say that the old distinction of whig and tory should no longer be kept up i am ready in opposition to their name of conservative to take the name of reformer and to stand by that opposition the tories or conservatives then had a slight gain as the result of the appeal to the country the new parliament on its assembling seems to have gathered in the commons an unusually large number of gifted and promising men there was something too of a literary stamp about it a fact not much to be observed in parliaments of a date nearer to the present time mr grote the historian of greece sat for the city of london the late lord lytton then mr edward lytton bulwer had a seat an advanced radical at that day mr disraeli came then into parliament for the first time charles buller full of high spirits brilliant humour and the very inspiration of keen good sense seemed on the sure way to that career of renown which a premature death cuts short sir william molesworth was an excellent type of the school which in later days was called the philosophical radical another distinguished member of the same school mr roebuck had lost his seat and was for the moment an outsider mr gladstone had been already five years in parliament the late lord carlisle then lord morpeth was looked upon as a graceful specimen of the literary and artistic young nobleman who also cultivates a little politics for his intellectual amusement lord john russell had but lately begun his career as leader of the house of commons lord palmerston was foreign secretary but had not even then got the credit of the great ability which he possessed not many years before mr greville spoke of him as a man who had been twenty years in office and never distinguished himself before mr greville expresses a mild surprise at the high opinion which persons who knew lord palmerston intimately were pleased to entertain as to his ability and his capacity for work only those who knew him very intimately indeed had any idea of the capacity for governing parliament and the country which he was soon afterwards to display sir robert peel was leader of the conservative party lord stanley the late lord derby was still in the house of commons 
he had not long before broken definitely with the Whigs on the question of the Irish ecclesiastical establishment, and had passed over to that conservative party of which he afterwards became the most influential leader and the most powerful parliamentary orator. O'Connell and Shile represented the eloquence of the Irish National Party. Decidedly, the House of Commons first elected during Queen Victoria's reign was strong in eloquence and talent. Only two really great speakers have arisen in the forty years that followed, who were not members of Parliament at that time, Mr. Cobden and Mr. Bright. Mr. Cobden had come forward as a candidate for the borough of Stockport, but was not successful and did not obtain a seat in Parliament until four years later. It was only by what may be called an accident that Macaulay and Mr. Roebuck were not in the Parliament of 1837. It is fair to say, therefore, that except for Cobden and Bright, the subsequent forty years have added no first-class name to the records of parliamentary eloquence. The ministry was not very strong in the House of Commons. Its conditions, indeed, hardly allowed it to feel itself strong, even if it had had more powerful representatives in either house. Its adherents were but loosely held together. The more ardent reformers were disappointed with ministers. The free trade movement was rising into distinct bulk and proportions, and threatened to be formidably independent of mere party ties. The government had to rely a good deal on the precarious support of Mr. O'Connell and his followers. They were not rich in debating talent in the Commons any more than in the Lords. Sir Robert Peel, the leader of the opposition, was by far the most powerful man in the House of Commons. Added to his great qualities as an administrator and a parliamentary debater, he had the virtue, then very rare among conservative statesmen, of being a sound and clear financier, with a good grasp of the fundamental principles of political economy. His high, austere character made him respected by opponents as well as by friends. He had not, perhaps, many intimate friends. His temperament was cold, or at least its heat was self-contained. He threw out no genial glow to those around him. He was by nature a reserved and shy man, in whose manners shyness took the form of pompousness and coldness. Something might be said of him like that which Richter said of Schiller, he was to strangers stony, and like a precipice from which it was their instinct to spring back. It is certain that he had warm and generous feelings, but his very sensitiveness only led him to disguise them. The contrast between his emotions and his lack of demonstrativeness created in him a constant artificiality which often seemed mere awkwardness. It was in the House of Commons that his real genius and character displayed themselves. The atmosphere of debate was to him what Macaulay says wine was to Addison, the influence which broke the spell under which his fine intellect seemed otherwise to lie imprisoned. Peel was a perfect master of the House of Commons. He was as great an orator as any man could be who addresses himself to the House of Commons, its ways and its purposes alone. He went as near, perhaps, to the rank of a great orator as anyone can go who is but little gifted with imagination. Oratory has been well described as the fusion of reason and passion. Passion always carries something of the imaginative along with it. 
sir robert peel had little imagination and almost none of that passion which in eloquence sometimes supplies its place his style was clear strong and stately full of various argument and apt illustration drawn from books and from the world of politics and commerce he followed a difficult argument home to its utter conclusions and if it had in it any lurking fallacy he brought out the weakness into the clearest light often with a happy touch of humour and quiet sarcasm his speeches might be described as the very perfection of good sense and high principle clothed in the most impressive language but they were something more peculiar than this for they were so constructed in their argument and their style alike as to touch the very core of the intelligence of the house of commons they told of the feelings and the inspiration of parliament as the ballad music of a country tells of its scenery and its national sentiments lord stanley was a far more energetic and impassioned speaker than sir robert peel and perhaps occasionally in his later career came now and then nearer to the height of genuine oratory but lord stanley was little more than a splendid parliamentary partisan even when long after he was prime minister of england he had very little indeed of that class of information which the modern world requires of its statesmen and leaders of political economy of finance of the development and discoveries of modern science he knew almost as little as it is possible for an able and energetic man to know who lives in the throng of active life and hears what people are talking of around him he once said good-humouredly of himself that he was brought up in the pre-scientific period his scholarship was merely such training in the classic languages as allowed him to have a full literary appreciation of the beauty of greek and roman literature he had no real and deep knowledge of the history of the greek and the roman people nor probably did he at all appreciate the great difference between the spirit of roman and greek civilization he had in fact what would have been called at an earlier day an elegant scholarship he had a considerable knowledge of the politics of his time in most european countries an energetic intrepid spirit and with him as macaulay well said the science of parliamentary debate seemed to be an instinct there was no speaker on the ministerial benches at that time who could for a moment be compared with him lord john russell who had the leadership of the party in the house of commons was really a much stronger man than he seemed to be he had a character of dauntless courage and confidence among his friends for boundless self-conceit among his enemies every one remembers sidney smith's famous illustrations of lord john russell's unlimited faith in his own power of achievement thomas moore addressed a poem to him at one time when lord john russell thought or talked of giving up political life in which he appeals to thy genius thy youth and thy name declares that the instinct of the young statesman is the same as the eaglets to soar with his eyes on the sun and implores him not to think for an instant thy country can spare such a light from her darkening horizon as thou later observers to whom lord john russell appeared probably remarkable for a cold and formal style as a debater and for lack of originating power as a statesman may find it difficult to reconcile the poet's picture with their own impressions of the reality but it is certain that at one time the reputation of lord john russell was that of a rather reckless man of genius a sort of whig shelley 
he had in truth much less genius than his friends and admirers believed and a great deal more of practical strength than either friends or foes gave him credit for he became not indeed an orator but a very keen debater who was especially effective in a cold irritating sarcasm which penetrated the weakness of an opponent's argument like some dissolving acid in the poem from which we have quoted more speaks of the eloquence of his noble friend as not like those rills from a height which sparkle and foam and in vapour are o'er but a current that works out its way into the light through the filtering recesses of thought and of lore allowing for the exaggeration of friendship and poetry this is not a bad description of what lord john russell's style became at its best the thin bright stream of argument worked its way slowly out and contrived to wear a path for itself through obstacles which at first the looker-on might have felt assured it never could penetrate lord john russell's swordsmanship was the swordsmanship of saladin and not that of stout king richard but it was very effective sword-play in its own way our english system of government by party makes the history of parliament seem like that of a succession of great political duels two men stand constantly confronted during a series of years one of whom is at the head of the government while the other is at the head of the opposition they change places with each victory the conqueror goes into office the conquered into opposition this is not the place to discuss either the merits or the probable duration of the principle of government by party it is enough to say here that it undoubtedly gives a very animated and varied complexion to our political struggles and invests them indeed with much of the glow and passion of actual warfare it has often happened that the two leading opponents are men of intellectual and oratorical powers so fairly balanced that their followers may well dispute among themselves as to the superiority of their respective chiefs and that the public in general may become divided into two schools not merely political but even critical according to their partiality for one or the other we still dispute as to whether fox or pitt was the greater leader the greater orator it is probable that for a long time to come the same question will be asked by political students about gladstone and disraeli for many years lord john russell and sir robert peel stood thus opposed they will often come into contrast and comparison in these pages for the present it is enough to say that peel had by far the more original mind and that lord john russell never obtained so great an influence over the house of commons as that which his rival long enjoyed the heat of political passion afterwards induced a bitter critic to accuse peel of lack of originality because he assimilated readily and turned to account the ideas of other men not merely the criticism but the principle on which it was founded was altogether wrong it ought to be left to children to suppose that nothing is original but that which we make up as the childish phrase is out of our own heads originality in politics as in every field of art consists in the use and application of the ideas which we get or are given to us the greatest proof sir robert peel ever gave of high and genuine statesmanship was in his recognition that the time had come to put into practical legislation the principles which cobden and villers and bright had been advocating in the house of commons lord john russell was a born reformer he had sat at the feet of fox 
he was cradled in the principles of liberalism he held faithfully to his creed he was one of its boldest and keenest champions he had great advantages over peel in the mere fact that he had begun his education in a more enlightened school but he wanted passion quite as much as peel did and remained still farther than peel below the level of the genuine orator russell as we have said had not long held the post of leader of the house of commons when the first parliament of queen victoria assembled he was still in a manner on trial and even among his friends perhaps especially among his friends there were whispers that his confidence in himself was greater than his capacity for leadership after the chiefs of ministry and of opposition the most conspicuous figure in the house of commons was the colossal form of o'connell the great irish agitator of whom we shall hear a good deal more among the foremost orators of the house at that time was o'connell's impassioned lieutenant richard lawler shile it is strange how little is now remembered of shile whom so many well-qualified authorities declared to be a genuine orator lord beaconsfield in one of his novels speaks of shile's eloquence in terms of the highest praise and disparages canning it is but a short time since mr gladstone selected shile as one of three remarkable illustrations of great success as a speaker achieved in spite of serious defects of voice and delivery the other two examples being dr chalmers and dr newman mr gladstone described shile's voice as like nothing but the sound produced by a tin kettle battered about from place to place knocking first against one side and then against another in anybody else mr gladstone went on to say i would not if it had been in my choice like to have listened to that voice but in him i would not have changed it for it was part of a most remarkable whole and nobody ever felt it painful while listening to it he was a great orator and an orator of much preparation i believe carried even to words with a very vivid imagination and an enormous power of language and of strong feeling there was a peculiar character a sort of half wildness in his aspect and delivery his whole figure and his delivery and his voice and his manner were all in such perfect keeping with one another that they formed a great parliamentary picture and although it is now thirty-five years since i heard mr shile my recollection of him is just as vivid as if i had been listening to him to-day this surely is a picture of a great orator as mr gladstone says shile was nor is it easy to understand how a man without being a great orator could have persuaded two experts of such very different schools as mr gladstone and mr disraeli that he deserved such a name yet the after years have in a curious but unmistakable way denied the claims of shile perhaps it is because if he really was an orator he was that and nothing more that our practical age finding no mark left by him on parliament or politics has declined to take much account even of his eloquence his career faded away into second-class ministerial office and closed at last somewhat prematurely in the little court of florence where he was sent as the representative of england he is worth mentioning here because he had the promise of a splendid reputation because the charm of his eloquence evidently lingered long in the memories of those to whom it was once familiar and because his is one of the most brilliant illustrations of that career of irish agitator which begins in stormy opposition to english government and subsides after a while into meek recognition of its title and adoption of its ministerial uniform 
o'connell we have passed over for the present because we shall hear of him again but of shile it is not necessary that we should hear any more this was evidently a remarkable parliament with russell for the leader of one party and peel for the leader of another with o'connell and shile as independent supporters of the ministry with mr gladstone still comparatively new to public life and mr disraeli to address the commons for the first time with palmerston still unrecognized and stanley lately gone over to conservatism itself the newest invented thing in politics with grote and bulwer and joseph hume and charles buller and ward and villers sir francis burdett and smith o'brien and the radical alcibiades of finsbury tom duncombe End of section 4